Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Well, with the final words of both previous books in the owner's manual, Judges and Ruth, pointing toward monarchy, one would expect to find the books of First and Second Kings listed next in the contents. Nearly, but not quite. Samuel comes first. That would be First and Second Samuel in your contents listing, along with First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. First, a relatively quick word about first, second, and sequels. Second Kings is not the sequel to First Kings, likewise with Samuel and Chronicles. The next large chunk of the owner's manual that seems to be covered by six separate books is really made up of three. You've got to take your habitat lenses off for a second and realize that in its first issue, The owner's manual was not what's available in multiple translations and versions housed in countless binding combinations as what you call a book on your shelf or on Amazon. Even you Kindle exclusives still know what a book looks like, for now at least. Well, what you think of as a book is actually merely one form of book known initially as a codex, a pile of papers held together by some kind of stitching. Before that, books were written predominantly on scrolls of either papyrus or animal hide. Let me tell you, it was no easy task to skip from chapter 3 to chapter 33 in those days, as it involved a couple hours worth of unscrolling. Far fewer people started by reading the ends of their mystery novels back then. Here's where scrolls play a part in the names of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. These books were all written in Hebrew, each one on one scroll only. Three books, three scrolls. You'll recall from our protracted discussion of my name and surrounding issues that written Hebrew has no vowels. Consequently, it takes up far less room on the written page or scroll than any language that does include written vowels. But even in its efficient vowel-less state, A Hebrew scroll of a major book like Samuel can be pretty hefty. So when the original Hebrew text of these books gets translated into Greek thanks to Alexander the Great and his sprawling influence, an unforeseen issue arises. You see, like most languages, Greek goes ahead and writes down its vowels for everyone to see right out there in the light of day, which takes up more room. Not to mention the fact that, while Hebrew is written in small, elegant, nearly delicate calligraphy, Greek is written in all capital letters all the time. No, they didn't think they were shouting all the time, as is meant by such use in your habitat. Or at least Greek was written in all caps when the owner's manual got its first translation into Greek. So the Greek translation of these books is producing a scroll so humongous that Samson himself would have trouble handling one. Therefore, the translators found a handy spot in the action in each of these three books to cut it essentially in half, 
yielding first and second whatever. Two is not a sequel. It's a continuation. There's a difference. Just ask George Lucas. So, Samuel it is. Not kings, Samuel. Here's why. Not only are the Israelites not ready for prime time, they're not ready for a king. Samuel's not going to be a king. He's actually technically a judge, the final judge in the string of judges about whom we've just been chatting. Samuel's not just lumped in at the end of the book of Judges because he's so crucial a judge and thus merits his own book. Samuel represents a singular pivot from one kind of life structure for my children to another. This is indeed a very significant turning point in the Abra plan, and by now you know whom I'm going to send in at this crucial juncture. That's right, a barren woman. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Samson, all born of women who were barren, until I granted their request to confer sons upon them. So Samuel's book opens with Samuel's faithful future dad, Elkanah of the tribe of Ephraim, uh, one of Joseph's sons, remember, and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Uh, let's just call her Penny. We know Elkanah's faithful by the fact that he makes an annual trip to Shiloh, uh, which is where the tabernacle with my presence settled at the big move-in. Elkanah heads to Shiloh every year to worship and make sacrifices to me. Two, actually, a burnt offering to atone for unintentional sin in the family, and another offering in thanksgiving for my provision. As the family unit unfolds before us in Tom, once again you've got a gal who can and does bear children, rubbing the nose of the gal who can't and obviously doesn't in it, and Penny is making life miserable for Baron Hannah. Also, once again, just as Jacob made no secret of the fact that he loved Rebecca more than his other options, Elkanah very publicly favors Hannah more than Penny, especially during their pilgrimages to Shiloh. You see, with a good number of sacrifices made to me, including the Thanksgiving offering Elkanah's just made, the family who makes the offering gets to keep some to eat themselves. It's a real nice image of them sitting down at the table with me for some barbecue. Well, when sitting down to the offering table with his family, Elkanah makes sure that the portion he gives Hannah is double the size of Penny's or anyone else's. Elkanah knows that Penny is mean to Hannah and does this to honor his beloved. The problem is, his favoritism only heightens Penny's scorn, who makes Hannah's life more miserable yet particularly on these Shiloh pilgrimages, and Hannah cries her eyes out and doesn't touch her slabs of ribs. One year, though, having had enough, Hannah takes matters to the higher power and comes before me and pleads her case. Elkanah's just played favorites again at their offering meal together, and Penny's shot daggered looks across the table at Hannah the whole time. Hannah knows it's going to be another wretched year unless something changes, so she runs to me in tears, crying hard. Between her sobs, she fervently vows that if I'll look with mercy on her misery and not lose track of her, as she feels I have thus far, but instead give her a baby boy and end her persecution, then she'll let me have the boy as a Nazarite, set aside for me for his entire life, 
not unlike Samson in that regard, though that's where the similarities mostly end. Now, the priest overseeing the tabernacle at the time, a fellow named Eli, is sitting over at the entrance while Hannah makes her case to me, and old Eli has got his eye on her. For one thing, not many women take it upon themselves to come before me on their own like this. And then Hannah's praying to me while she's crying, but doing so silently. She is moving her lips, though, and Eli mistakenly thinks the gal is three sheets to the wind already at this point in the day. In his defense, most of the prayers he witnesses there are pro forma ritual prayers and are spoken aloud. Hannah's are different, though, spoken straight from her broken heart, a cry from her depths that Eli's not had the opportunity to witness much. So he mistakes her moving lips for the tipsy mutterings of inebriation. When he scolds Hannah for what he's mistakenly assumed about her, she sets him straight in so solemn a manner there can be no question of her sobriety. She explains that she's poured no spirits that day, she's simply pouring out her own spirit to me, laying all her worries and frustrations out before my presence. Eli's well convinced and sends her away with a blessing that asks me to grant her request. And you already know that I do. By the time another year rolls around and it's time for the Elkanah family to head back to Shiloh, Hannah's given birth to her son and named him He Who Is From God, Samuel. I've loved that name ever since. So Hannah stays behind with her too-young-to-travel baby that year, and the next, and the next. A woman of her word Hannah plans to surrender her boy to me the first time she brings him to the tabernacle, and as a good mom, she wants to wean him first. Eli is obviously not equipped to care for her child before then. Those three years are a tender time for Hannah with Samuel, knowing she'll be leaving him at Shiloh soon. As she teaches him the basics of life and cares for him, she wonders what kind of man he'll become in my service. As she teaches him how to walk and talk, she imagines where his feet might take him some day, and what words he'll declare in my name. So fulfilled by and focused on her son is Hannah that she barely notices Penny's passive-aggressive antics, which haven't stopped since Elkanah still prefers Hannah. And when time comes to bring Samuel to me at Shiloh, Elkanah brings three bowls instead of the customary two and one of them is offered as an act of commitment, pledging the three-year-old Samuel to me in my service. Hannah brings her boy to Eli and reminds him of their encounter, saying that I have been true to my side of her proposal. I have granted her request for a son. She is therefore keeping her pledge and is lending him to me indefinitely, or for as long as he lives. Though it's mighty tough for Hannah to leave her only child behind, she does so in confidence, knowing a couple of important things. First of all, she'll see him every year when they come back, and she will in fact make him a fresh set of clothes, his own little priestly robe, each year. Secondly, Hannah knows all the way down to her toenails that I've got her back, as well as her son's. This is quite clear in her rapturous song prayer that kicks off 1 Samuel 2. Here's another moment that you owe to yourself, friend. Dig out your manual and crack it open to 1 Samuel 2, 
and read the first ten verses. Make sure to keep substituting my name in the places it's been replaced by the Lord, please. As Samuel grows in stature and favor with me and with the people around him, old Eli's appreciation for the lad couldn't be greater. So grateful for little Samuel is he that on their next annual visit to Shiloh, Eli blesses Hannah and Elkanah with a prayer that I repay her faithfulness with more children. So over the coming years, Samuel's got three brothers and two sisters to inspect on their annual visit. More about Samuel in the next episode. For now, just take my word that he's going to be the faithful servant to me and my people his mother hoped he'd be. But before we leave Hannah to raise the rest of her brood, notice once again how important her faith is, not just to Samuel as at first, but eventually to the nation and to the moving forward of the entire Abra plan. In that respect, she's a powerful example for every parent. It's impossible to underestimate the impact your faith makes on your own son or daughter, even more so in the impact their faith will have on others someday. Good or ill, you set an example for your little man or woman. Don't give up asking me to come alongside you as a fellow parent of your little tyke. Now, I'm not suggesting a Nazarite vow over the child, whether they're still in the oven or long out. And it's a rare parent who knows me that doesn't bring me into the picture. Even people who don't know us often invoke our names in the midst of their parenting. However, this is another moment in the plan that underscores how important it is to actively seek my assistance and blessing when it comes to the breathtakingly precious gift of a child. The very important steps Samuel is about to walk would never have been taken without the faith of his mother. We'll find out more about Samuel's steps and how they impact your walk with me next time on The Way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.